Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. As I said earlier, this is part two of the story of the Babacan murder mystery. If you missed it, you can find part one as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts or go to www.backtracker.co.uk and find out what happened in the first part. But here's a quick recap. Emma Ann Whitehead Keys, the lady who owned the Glen, was 68 years old and never married. She was born in Edmonton, London in 1816. She lived at the Glen in Babacombe, Devon, with four servants, one of whom was John Lee, a butler-cum-handyman. On the night of the 14th of November 1884, the servants went to bed as usual. Around three or four in the morning, the cook woke up to the smell of smoke and hurried to wake the maids. Eliza Neck went to Miss Key's room to wake her, but the room was on fire and Miss Keys was not in her bed. As the servants made their way downstairs, they saw that both the drawing and dining rooms were on fire. John Lee emerged from his room next to the kitchen. Eliza Neck found Miss Keys lying on the floor of the dining room with severe head injuries, quite obviously dead, and John Lee was accused of her murder. Word of the week. This week, the word I give you is... Blandish, which is from Middle English, and it means to flatter, to fawn, to be enticing or persuasive. So if someone's trying to get you to do something by being especially nice, they're being blandish. During the investigation into the fire started at the Glen, they discovered it was paraffin that was used, and the paraffin oil was kept in a cupboard over the prisoner's bed. On the day before the murder, there were three to four pints in the can. The next day, it was empty. Elizabeth Harris, the cook and half-sister of the accused, John Lee, talked about a conversation she'd had with her brother in the kitchen of the house they worked in, just a few months before the incident. 
He'd said, I suppose Miss Keys will not give me a character. If she won't, I will level the place in ashes to the ground. She wasn't entirely sure whether he was joking or not, and asked him not to burn her in it, and he promised to let her know when he was going to do it. On the 28th of October, 1884, Lee had come into the kitchen, crying, and she asked what was wrong. He replied that Miss Keys would only pay him two shillings a week, and that he would have his revenge, saying that if she'd been near a cliff when she'd said it, he would have thrown her over. On a subsequent occasion, Lee said he would burn the house and stand on the hill and watch the flames until arrested. A postman named Richards told in court how just before the murder, Lee had told him he was tired of the place, and if Miss Keys did not give him another job soon, she would wish he had, for he would put an end to someone before he left. The landlord at the local Carey Arms, Mr Gaskin, was first called by the prisoner and said the fire must have been burning in the dining room for about two hours before being discovered. The suggestion that the blood on Lee's trousers might have come from the body whilst carrying it out was quite frankly rubbished by Mr Gaskin, saying that the carrying didn't result in any blood on his clothes and a further suggestion that the oil on the socks might be due to the prisoner running about in his socks was also dismissed by evidence that he had something on his feet besides his stockings. Also in court, the chief coast guard officer said that when he arrived at the Glen soon after four o'clock, there was blood on the prisoner's trousers and shirt. Lee had told him he'd cut his arm breaking a glass of the dining room window to let the smoke out, but when the shutters were opened, the glass fell inwards, showing that the window had been broken from the outside and the blood on the window frame was on the outside and not on the inside. On Tuesday the 3rd of February, the prosecution proceeded with new evidence from police witnesses. The prisoner didn't seem that perturbed, displaying the same indifference that he'd shown on the previous day in court when accused of the murder, he said nothing. Evidence was given by a police sergeant showing that the distance from the pool of blood in the hall to the prisoner's bed was only 8 feet 9 inches and there was an open space of 2 feet on the top of the pantry door that sound and smoke could easily pass through. Charred paper and other items from the dining room were produced, all saturated with mineral oil, and the carpet of the room, which also smelt of oil. The police officer detailed the examination he made of the house, saying how there was no indication of anyone breaking in. All doors and windows were securely fastened and undamaged, and none of the drawers or their contents had been disturbed. Lee once again declared that he had broken the dining room window from the inside to let the smoke out, but when the shutters were opened, or the glass fell into the room, and witnesses were positive the window must have been broken from the outside. There were also smears of blood outside the window. When Lee was questioned, he said after going to bed, he didn't hear anything until the servants shouted out, and when they aroused him, he dressed. 
One of the servants said the prisoner was already dressed when they came down. It was at this point in the proceedings that Lee's clothes were produced. Blood was on most of the garments. The left breast of his shirt was covered. On the left arm of his overcoat, there was a smear running down the whole length, as if something had been wiped on it. Apart from the blood on his coat and trousers, there were also stains of oil, and the prisoner's socks smelt strongly of oil, and on one of them, there was a human hair. Love letters were read out that were between Lee and his sweetheart, the former stating that he was unsettled and suggesting that she should give him up, whilst the girl replied that she would not do so because she loved him so dearly and would be his wife, even if he did have to break stones on the street. The police sergeant was cross-examined for two and a half hours and he concluded his evidence with the production of a host of things stained with blood, including the oil can found in the cupboard above the prisoner's bed, a knife found in his drawer and bloodstains found on the inside of the drawer. Locks of hair from the deceased's head were also produced and the prisoner's stockings on which were hairs similar to those of the deceased. There was also the deceased's diary which mainly contained quotations of scripture and was saturated with oil and partly damaged by the fire. There was great surprise in court created by the counsel for the defence not actually asking this witness any questions in cross-examination. Other witnesses called said that on the morning of the fire, the prisoner was shaking and when this was noticed, he said he felt cold and was upset because the job had been a bad one and he'd lost a good friend. The witnesses thought, though, that the prisoner's shaking looked more like nervousness than anything else. The evidence of Dr. Steele proved that the wounds in the head and throat of the deceased corresponded with those that would be produced by a hatchet and the knife that was found in Lee's drawer. Lee protested his innocence throughout the trial, and his case was poorly presented, with no defence witnesses being called and an inadequate cross-examination of the prosecution witnesses. The prosecution case was unconvincing too, amounting to little more than that Lee, a young man with a criminal record, was the only male in the house at the time of the murder and was found with blood on his clothes after the event. Word on the street. This is a bit of a weird one. Today I'll be taking you to Tainmouth in Devon. And a mysterious street that doesn't have any houses on it, but is in fact a gap between two terraces of houses leading from Regent Street and what was originally the East Tainmouth Marketplace into the open area that was called the Esplanade and is now a small car park. It's appeared on maps since 1828, but this old wide alley never had a name. It doesn't even have a name on the 1997 Ordnance Survey Plan. So it was named by Tainbridge in the last 20 years or so. Its name is The Street With No Name. I kid ye not. What's a little odd is that although many witnesses say that Lee's coat and trousers smelled of paraffin oil, 
Evidence from the medical practitioner cast doubt on whether this was true of the trousers when he first examined them, suggesting that this exhibit had been tampered with. Overall, the evidence against Lee was little more than circumstantial, but the jury took just 40 minutes to find him guilty, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. When the judge asked him why he had taken the sentence with such equanimity, Lee replied, The reason I am so calm is that I trust in the Lord, and he knows that I am innocent. John Lee was sentenced to death for the murder of Emma Keyes. The Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette of the 12th of February 1885 gives notice of his impending execution. John Lee, convicted of the murder of his mistress, Miss Keyes, at Babacombe, will be executed at Exeter on the 23rd instant. John protested he had not committed the murder. He wrote a long letter to his half-sister Elizabeth Harris, the cook, 12 days before the date of his execution, in which he questioned the truthfulness of her testimony and that of the other servants at the Glen at his trial. There is no doubt that the truth will come out after I am dead. It must be some very hard-hearted person to let me die for nothing. They have not told six words of truth. That is the servants and that lovely stepsister who carries her character with her. The night before the fateful day, Lee claimed to have had a vision in which an angel told him he need have no fear as he wouldn't be executed because he was innocent. Before he was taken to the gallows, the trapdoor was oiled and tested by the executioner, James Berry, beforehand, and it was working perfectly with a £140 sandbag as a weight. The chief constable of Devon, Gerald de Courcy Hamilton, describes the remarkable offence that unfolded during the attempted execution of John Lee. On the prisoner reaching the place of execution, he was placed by Berry, the executioner, immediately under the crossbeam over which was carried the rope. He was faced outwards towards the door, with both feet standing transversely on the junction of the two flaps or shutters which formed the drop. The executioner, with considerable skill and rapidity, as it appears to me, strapped the culprit's legs above the ankles, drew the cap over his face, adjusted the noose round his neck, stepped back and pulled the iron handle or trigger to let fall the footboards. To my intense astonishment, however, these latter deflected only about a quarter of an inch and appeared to be tightly jammed together about the centre. The executioner and some of the prison officials standing by endeavoured by stamping on the boards to get them to move, but without avail. After some seconds, the prisoner's face was uncovered and he was led away to an adjoining cell or room in the prison. In the meanwhile, the executioner and prison officials did their best to ascertain the cause of the machine not working. My own impression was that, the morning being very wet and damp, the footboards had become swollen and were thus unable to free themselves when their top edges came into contact. I consequently urged the use of a plane and pointed out the spot which I considered caused the impediment. The prison engineer produced a plane and a tomahawk and we eased the centre of the boards. 
A prison warder was made to stand on them, holding on by both hands to the rope. The trigger was pulled and the boards fell. The prisoner was then brought out again and the execution proceeded as in the first instance, but again the boards refused to fall. When the executioner James Berry died in 1913, the newspaper The Scotsman gave the following account of the attempted execution. Lee was to have been hanged at Exeter Jail on Monday, February 23rd, 1885, and was duly brought out for execution. Berry was the hangman. When the final arrangements had been made, the lever was pulled, but the trap did not work. Berry pulled the lever again, and the warders on either side stamped their feet upon the trap, but it would not move. Lee was removed, and the drop sprang all right when no one was on it, but when Lee was placed upon it again, the door, once more, refused to work. And so they tried three times to carry out the execution, and each time the door wouldn't open when Lee had his neck in the noose. And so the medical officer refused to take any part in the proceedings, and they stopped. Chief Constable of Devon, Gerald de Courcy Hamilton, said... That this third attempt having failed, I ordered him to be removed to a cell near, myself attempting to take him into my reception ward through which he had previously passed. That I am reported to have said to the prison officials, you may experiment as much as you like on the sack of flour, but you shall not experiment on this man any longer. That he was accordingly taken into the passage near, that presently the governor informed the chaplain and myself that the apparatus would not work, that I then desired that the man should be taken back and the execution postponed, that the said condemned prisoner was returned to his cell, that I offered under the sheriff a certificate which he was glad to accept, that such certificate was drawn up in my office and signed by the governor, chaplain and myself, for the information of Her Majesty's Secretary of State. The Home Secretary, Sir William Harcourt, commuted the sentence to life imprisonment. In answer to a question in the House of Commons on the 23rd of February, 1885, he replied, The Under-Sheriff of Exeter came up to London this afternoon to see me and told me the facts of this painful case, and after considering them, I thought that it would shock the feelings of everyone if a man had twice to incur the pangs of imminent death. I therefore, this afternoon, signed a respite in his case to continue during Her Majesty's pleasure. The Home Office ordered an investigation into the failure of the apparatus and it was discovered that when the gallows was moved from the old infirmary into the coach house, the drawbar was slightly misaligned. As a result, the hinges of the trap door bound and did not drop cleanly through. In a letter he wrote to his sister, Lee claimed that... It was the Lord's hand that would not let the law be carried out. In his memoirs, My Experiences as an Executioner, Barry recorded a detailed account of the failed execution noting that the trapdoor was adjusted with a saw and axe between the attempted executions, 
although in Barry's memoirs and letter to the undersheriff, he only mentions two attempted executions. On looking into the local legends surrounding this case, the Romani people at the time of which Lee was one said you can't hang a gypsy. And on the day of his intended execution, Lee's mother is said to have sat on the castle mound and made the weather vane point against the prevailing wind as a sign of her supernatural power and ultimate control over the malfunction of the gallows. Lee continued to petition successive home secretaries and finally, after 23 years, he was released on Wednesday the 18th of December 1907 and exploited his notoriety, supporting himself through lecturing on his life and even becoming the subject of a silent film. Accounts of his whereabouts after 1916 are somewhat confused and one researcher even speculated that in later years there was more than one man claiming to be John Lee. Lee never offered a wholly plausible explanation of the events of the night of the murder. Many people believed that he was protecting someone, probably his half-sister Elizabeth Harris, the cook. What is certain is that Harris was pregnant at the time of the crime because she gave birth to a child in the Newton Abbott workhouse during May 1885. And so, after his release, on the 22nd of January 1909, John Lee married Jessie Augusta Bould, a chief nurse of the female mental wards of Newton Abbott Workhouse at Newton Abbott in Devon. It was originally suspected that he died in the Tavistock Workhouse sometime during the Second World War. However, more recent research concludes that he died in the United States under the name of James Lee. In 1945, as recently as 2004, researchers in England discovered records in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, USA, of John's later life. On the 25th of September 1939, he completed a declaration of intent, the first step in the process of becoming an American citizen. In this document, he declared that he and his wife arrived in New York on the 28th of February 1911, on the Prince Frederick Wilhelm. It was then subsequently found that his wife was the barmaid Adelina Gibbs, who on the 28th of November 1910, just three months prior to their departure for America, had married a William Jones at St. Michael's Church in Litchfield. Adelina was born on 24th of December 1874 in Canterbury, Kent, to William and Evelyn Gibbs. To date, there is no record of John's divorce from Jessie Bullard or of a subsequent marriage to Adelina. Also, in this declaration, John declared that he did not have children. However, in the 1930 USA census, there was a daughter, Evelyn, who was born on the 1st of August 1914 to John and Adelina. She died suddenly on the 12th of October 1933 whilst employed as a maid for Dr and Mrs Kovacs of 1803 West Wisconsin Avenue, Milwaukee. Let's go back to the 1930 census which stated that John Lee was a shipping clerk at the Motor Truck Company in Milwaukee and died on the 19th of March 1945 aged 81. His widow Adelina died on the 9th of January 1969, both in Milwaukee. 
For the 34 years John and Adelina had lived in Milwaukee, they had lived there illegally as their citizenship application had never been processed. John was buried at the Forest Home Cemetery, Milwaukee. Emma Keyes was buried on the 20th of November, 1884, within three coffins, one inside the other. There was an outer shell, then one made of lead, then a polished oak one last. The inscription plate read, Emma Ann Whitehead Keyes, age 68, died 15th of November, 1884. She was interred in the family vault at the east end of the churchyard at St Mary's Church. As for her beloved family home, the Glen, well, it was later demolished except for the boathouse on Babicombe Beach, containing the garden room, which survived and was converted by the Borough Council into the Beach Cafe in the 1920s. It was sadly destroyed by fire itself in 1928. The site of the Glen is now the Beach Car Park. Long after Lee slipped away from public sight, a Devon newspaper stirred the embers of the Babacan murder mystery with a tale spun in 1936. They hinted at a buried secret, one intertwined with a local figure from about 1890. The story whispered of a man caught in a compromising moment by Miss Keyes, prompting a fatal struggle to shield his honour. The protagonist of this hushed rumour was Reginald Templer, a local solicitor who himself died at a mere 29, claimed by syphilis a few years after the fateful incident. Templer's conduct in the wake of the Glen Inferno raised more than a few eyebrows. He penned dramatic missives mere hours after the blaze and offered to champion Lee's cause, despite his supposed ties to the Keyes family. Yet his legal endeavours proved feeble tinged with hints of mental strife, as if burdened by a guilty conscience. This, though, is all rumour and conspiracy theories which naturally surround a story such as this where there are more questions than there are answers. It even prompted New Island album from Fairport Convention called Babacom Lee. Are you tired of seeing the latest social media trends and fearing the worst? Does the daily news bring you down? Are you looking for something new and fun to listen to? Well, well that's, that's where, where we, we come, come in. in. Hi. Hi. It's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we present a fictional story utilizing the hottest happenings in the world and bring it straight to your earbuds. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm slash evertrendingpod and subscribe today. In shocking news today, I just had a terrible nightmare that I was trapped inside a snow globe. I'm okay, though. Just feel a bit shaken up. Back-in-the-day facts. A 
And so we begin with the 24th of February, 1809, when London's Drury Lane Theatre burns to the ground, leaving its owner, Irish writer and politician, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, destitute. The building that stands today opened in 1812. From the Second World War, the theatre was primarily hosting long runs of musicals, including Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, 42nd Street, and Miss Saigon, the theatre's longest-running show. Also on the 24th of February, but in 1955, the American jazz vocalist Ella Fitzgerald appeared at the Colston Hall. On the 25th of February, 1939, as part of British air raid precautions, the first of 2.5 million Anderson shelters is constructed in a garden in Islington, North London. Anderson shelters were designed in 1938 and built to hold up to six people and were in common use in the UK. Indoor shelters, known as the Morrison shelters, were introduced as well. On the 27th of February, 1870, the current flag of Japan is first adopted as the national flag for Japanese merchant ships. Also on the 27th of February, but in 2015, Leonard Nimoy, American actor, passed away from a condition he attributed to a smoking addiction he had quit about 30 years earlier. The 28th of February, 1953, sees Francis Crick and James Watson discover the chemical structure of the DNA molecule, or double helix polymer, using studies of X-ray diffraction developed by Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins. On the 29th of February, 2012, Davy Jones, English actor and singer, best known as a member of the band The Monkees and co-star of the TV series The Monkees, passed away. Apart from his work with the group, this teenage heartthrob's acting credits also include a Tony-nominated performance as the Artful Dodger in the original London and Broadway production of Oliver. And lastly, on the 1st of March, 1890, the first US edition of Sherlock Holmes' story, A Study in Scarlet, by Arthur Conan Doyle, is published. Well, I'm afraid that's it from me today. I'd like to thank the actors that have brought today's story to life. And this week we have Steve Yeo, Kate Kendall, Sreese Reed, Steve Shepard and Tony Allen. Thank you one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs> <laughs>